need to build the discipline, the habits, dance with the fear of performing, understand that not every time you're going to succeed, but in the long term, if you make the right choices every day, you're going to accumulate, you're going to grow, try to grow every year. Every day you make small decisions that all combine up to really big growth, not comparing yourself to others, but just to yourself. Am I better than yesterday? How can I be a better person? If you become a better person and grow as a, as a person, the professional career is also going to take off. What's up, everyone? Welcome to another episode of The Artists of Data Science. Be sure to follow the show on Instagram at The Artists of Data Science and on Twitter at Artists of Data. I'll be sharing awesome tips and wisdom on data science as well as clips from the show. Join the free open mastermind Slack channel by going to bit.ly.com forward slash Artists of Data Science, where I'll keep you updated on bi-weekly open office hours that I'll be hosting for the community. I'm your host, Harpreet Sahota. Let's ride this beat out into another awesome episode. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review the show. Our guest today is on a mission to teach people skills to analytical thinkers and bridge the data business gap with emotional intelligence. 10 years ago, he was a professional poker who spent every day optimizing his decisions based on data and human behavior. Though he doesn't play poker anymore, he's still passionate about psychology and numbers. He has a background in behavioral economic and uses that theoretical understanding of data and human behavior to understand how interpersonal relationships work in practice. And in the process, he's learned that the main data challenge for companies is not technology, it's the interaction between people. Through his training and coaching programs, which is grounded in a human-centric approach, he's helped hundreds of people learn how to ask better questions, communicate with business leaders, and present their results with impact. So please help me in welcoming our guest today, a man who's on a mission to help 100,000 analytical thinkers improve their people skills, Gilbert Boom. Gilbert, man, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to be here today. I really, really appreciate having you here on the show. Thank you very much. I'm very excited and thank you very much for uh, the invitation. I'm looking forward to our conversation. I'm sure it's going to bring some interesting stuff. Definitely, man, because I think the work that you're doing in this space is super important and something that is often overlooked by people who are not only in the data field, but breaking into the data field, because this is stuff that's not typically part of our normal curriculum that we learn in school, but it's so fundamental and foundational to our continued success. Before we get into all that, though, I was wondering if you could talk to us a bit about your journey. Uh, you know, what made you give up playing professional poker and how'd you get involved in the data world? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So what I've, what I've done during my student time, I started playing poker. A friend of mine, he showed me how to play it. I had no idea what the rules were, but slowly I got more into it. The reason I got into it is because I enjoy numbers and psychology so much. Because I was continually, like you said in the introduction, continually optimizing my decisions based on data and also taking all the psychology into account, what decisions the other people were making. And I thought it was fascinating. And in the beginning, it was, it was tough. I was just playing on for the play money, uh, <laughs> not, not for real money, but step by step, I could climb a bit higher and I had a, had a great time. But like you said, it, at some point, I felt 
the world of poker was a bit too much just about poker. It's a really small world and people enjoy talking about poker. And although I liked the game, I felt there was a bit more. There's a bit more to, uh, to it. So that's why I explore a bit of a broader perspective. I decided to study behavioral economics which has this data component as well as the psychology component. Then I started to started my career uh, six years ago as a consultant in, in analytics. And again, in analytics, I saw a lot of uh, things coming together for me. First of all, the data, and second of all, the psychology. And what I enjoy most is combining those two. So using the technical methods to find insights in data and apply those insights combined with psychology. So you've had a pretty good, good track record here over the last six years working in, in, you know, in the data space. I was wondering where do you see the field of analytics and data science headed in the next, say, two to five years? Hmm. Interesting question. Uh, what I see now in the market is that a lot of companies still treat data science as the, the magic bullets, I would say. They hire an expensive team of data scientists because most data scientists are very expensive. They put them on some desks and give them some desks and then expect that the magic will happen. It's a bit like I read a metaphor once. It's not mine, but I'm, uh, I'm happy to steal it. It's a bit like a gym membership because if you can, if you purchase a really ex expensive gym membership with expensive gym clothes and the greatest running shoes you can find in the store, um, that doesn't mean you're, you're getting fit, right? You, you need to go to the gym. You need to put in the effort. You need to make sure that you're going to sweat. And I see the same happening in data science. It doesn't mean if you put a team of data science in your company that is going to work directly, you need to test experiments. There's a lot of difficulties on collaboration between data scientists and the business people because they don't just have a different job role and different experience. Usually they also have a different personality and way of thinking. And that's exactly where, where the struggle is. So what do you think is going to separate the great data scientists from the just merely good data scientists uh, kind of going forward in the next two to five years? I would say there's, there's two important things. First of all, because Data science, data science is changing so so quickly, the, the field with all the different technologies. It helps a lot if you're immensely curious and, and a fast learner. And to do that, you need to have, a, have an open mind. And second of all, the, that point relates to what I've said earlier. If you are a really good communicator, if you have the emotional intelligence to work with other people, understand what they need and how they're going to use your models, that's certainly helps in becoming a, a really good data scientist. So speaking of uh, making use of models, how do you see data science impacting the field of behavioral economics in the next two to five years? Yeah, what I see with the combination of data science and behavioral economics, there's a lot of interesting applications in banking because behavioral economics is about the psychology of decision making. So to understand how we make certain decisions, because if we, if we understand how people make decisions, we can also influence those decisions in a positive way. If you think about yourself, saving money is, is often hard. It's way easier to just to spend it, go to a bar and, and spend, spend it on 10 beers. It's, it's quite easy, but having the discipline to save money every, every year is, is tricky. And and that's why there's a lot of behavioral economic, economists 
that said, okay, we need to uh, nudge their behavior. So influence in a positive way, such that people will save more. So one of the examples, there's an Australian bank. They had an app where you could round up all your purchases, which means that if you buy a sandwich of 365, then it's going to be round up to four. All those small amounts, so 35 cents, amount up to quite a big amount in the end. Uh, and that helps you to save more and reach your saving goals. Where data science comes in is to understand each type of customer because all people are different, of course, but still data science allows us to to make segmentations and understand what type of customers there are. And by understanding what type of customers there are, you can also understand what is driving their behavior and how can we influence it in, in a positive way. So not just make a big and bigger profit, but also help them reach their own personal goals. Talking about human behavior, I want to get into your book, People Skills for Analytical Thinkers. And I like your approach to mapping human behavior, kind of the decision-making process to algorithms. Can you talk to us about the first principle that you bring up in your book and how we can see our brain as a set of algorithms with an input, a process, and a output? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, I was on a world trip last year for six months. What I wanted is to just to write a, a small piece of paper, let's say 20 20 pages, uh, a PDF document to help some data scientists out with these people skills. But eventually it grew, it grew, and now it's a complete book. What I always found tricky is that all the psychology books, all the personal development books, they have just a kind of standard format, which I understood was not completely applicable to me as an analytical thinker, right? Like as, as an analyst, as a, as a data scientist. Um, so that's why, indeed, I use a, a lot of metaphors from, from data, uh, like the one in the beginning of my book with the algorithm, where I say, okay, you're, you can see your brain as a set of algorithms. How that works is, first of all, it, it takes the input from uh, your environment. So you are somewhere in the supermarket or in a meeting, and you take in all the different inputs based on that your brain is going to think what is the appropriate response. So based on the inputs your algorithms in your head produce an output. A lot of those algorithms are, you've, you've learned over the, over the last years. A lot of algorithms also you uh, developed in the early years during your childhood. And that's exactly the reason why psychologists, if they have an interview with you before your job, they always dig into your childhood. And for some people, it's quite difficult to talk about that. It's very personal, of course, but there's a reason why they do it. It's because in those first year of your, years of your development, yeah, the, the groundwork is being done for, for, for later work. So all the, all the algorithms or many algorithms are developed in that period. To give an example, to make it very concrete. So if you're a little guy, so Harpreet has a, has a new voice since, uh, since a few days. Congratulations. So in a, in a few years, imagine he's, he's walking in the kitchen. He's, he's standing close to the, the oven, the stove, and then he touches it because kids are very curious, right? Of course, it's, it's very painful if the, if the oven is on. At that moment, there's going to be an algorithm formed. Okay, if I'm in the, in the kitchen and I see the light is on and the oven is turned on, let's not touch it. So that's a really simple example how we learn the certain input. So I'm in the kitchen. I should not touch it that send the algorithms that we teach ourselves. And of course, this is a basic example, but it works the same in meetings with, with a lot of senior uh, guys. So maybe uh, you think about, hmm, should I raise this question, yes or no? 
but I feel a bit nervous because maybe it feels awkward or maybe I will look like I'm a bit stupid because I'm asking this question. Because of the algorithms we, we have developed in the past, uh, in our childhood, it's going to be more difficult. Part of it is also because, uh, because of evolution. I, and I can tell a bit more if you like. Speaking of evolution, right, you, you mentioned like there's two systems in the brain, limbic system and, and neocortex. Is that uh, what you're about to reference? And mm -hmm. if, if, if so, can you talk about what they are and what their influence is in our daily lives? Absolutely. Yeah. How you can see your brain is that it consists of two different systems. One is the limbic system. You can see it as the emotional brain. And the other one is the thinking brain. The neocortex. So the emotional brain and the thinking brain. The best metaphor that I use is an elephant and a rider because the elephant is the emotional brain. The rider is the thinking brain. So the rider is the rational guy on top. He knows where to go and he has the, the facts and the information, but the elephant is emotional. Doesn't always, always listen to the rider. How does this apply to your life? For example, if you get come home from a long day of data science work and you decide, okay, uh, I want to get fit. So I want to go to the gym. And that's your thinking brain because your thinking brain knows what is, knows rationally what is the best uh, way to live your life. But then your emotional brain says, mm, well, uh, I've had a long day. Maybe I want to relax a bit and it's okay. And let's, let's take a candy. <laughs> and, and before you know it, you're, you're on the couch. And why? Because your emotional brain is so much stronger than, than your thinking brain. Because the, yeah, an elephant is 40 times heavier, right, than, than just a human. So the rider, of course, can try to steer in the right direction. But in the end, the emotional brain, the elephant, uh, will go wherever he wants to go. And that's also an important point in the book where I really considered myself very rational and analytical. And although there's a lot of good qualities on that, that really made it difficult for me to interact with others. I was, I was quite shy. I was overthinking. I was thinking about others. So what, what will they think about me? Uh, is this... What I'm, gonna, what I'm about to say, is this good enough, funny enough, smart enough? That made it very difficult for me to, to speak up a bit more and to connect with other people. I found over the years that those are the, the qualities or skills that I needed to develop to connect with other people. That's exactly what I see in, um, in other data scientists as well, what I hear from them, their struggles. And that's why I'm so passionate to, to help them with these topics. So you're talking about um, these feelings, these negative feelings like, oh, what are people going to think about me? Are they going to think I'm stupid? So these are the type of feelings that are coming from, from the limbic system, right? And so it's that the neocortex part of the brain that we should train ourselves to think, okay, when I have this negative feeling, negative emotion, let me try to flip that into something more positive instead of thinking to myself, oh, these people are going to think I'm stupid. I could tell myself, actually, no, they're not going to think I'm stupid. They're going to think that I'm genuinely interested in this particular outcome and I want to see it succeed, right? It's just all about kind of the narrative that you tell yourself, right? Exactly, exactly, yeah. yeah. And when you become aware of these things, these emotions, you can also steer them. But if you're not aware of them, you're going to be heavily influenced by them, even as a rational thinker. I always thought, okay, I'm a rational thinker. That's how I make my decisions. But I was very far from the truth. If you become more observant and more aware of these, these emotions, yeah, you can just sit with them and you can say, hey, I indeed feel a bit fearful to, to ask a question or to volunteer for an important presentation. Um, but but I just, I'm just going to push through the fear and just do it anyway. And, that, and that's how these, the, the elephant and the rider uh, can work in harmony. So talk to us about 
rejection? You know, what's the biological mechanism for it? And, you know, a, a lot of people out there who are applying for jobs, they they fear rejection in the job search. How can we how can we leverage now that we're armed with this knowledge, these two systems, right? The, the limbic system, the neocortex, how could we better cope with rejection in our job search? Yeah, it's a really uh, on-point question, especially in this time. It's so hard to to feel rejection. It's it's, it's very hard because when I, when I feel rejected, I feel kind of wordless. I I don't enjoy the moment. I am not in the state to to do any any productive work. I think many many people experience the same way, and that is the emotional brain talking, the elephant, which is saying like, "Oh, this is stupid. I don't wanna I don't wanna do it anymore," and just pushing away all those emotions. Well, you can also think, hmm, okay, this I, I feel in my body that it, I don't enjoy this, but still I'm going to change the narrative, just like you mentioned just now. If I don't get invited for a job interview, or maybe after the last round, they say, it's not going to work. We chose someone else. You can say, hey, they rejected me or they chose for someone else. If you think, if you have a different mindset and think they probably had a good reason to do so, I'm not bad. The other person is just maybe a bit better for this particular position in this particular moment for this company. I think with such a narrative, you can keep your confidence and just apply for the next. And especially in this time, it's very hard to find a position. But I think with such a method, you keep the positivity and your self-confidence high. So it's kind of not taking the rejection as a personal attack against you, your skill set, your self-worth, not letting that rejection affect your self-worth and rather reframing the story to yourself that, okay, well, you know what? This organization had a certain set of requirements. They needed a certain skill set for this job. And my skill set for this job actually didn't align and that's okay because I've probably saved myself a lot of stress and heartache and hardships had I gone into a role where maybe I wasn't aligned well for it. It comes back to, I guess, this kind of the narrative that you tell yourself, right? Yeah, beautiful, beautiful. And how you frame it, it's, it's even more positive. It's not neutral like I framed it, but mm-hmm. it's it's like one layer on top. You, you frame it in a positive way. I probably wouldn't be happy in such a role. And now I'm going to look, now I have the opportunity to find a role that completely fits me. What's up, artists? Be sure to join the free Open Mastermind Slack community by going to bit.ly.com forward slash artists of data science. It's a great environment for us to talk all things data science, to learn together, to grow together. And I'll also keep you updated on the open bi-weekly office hours that I'll be hosting for our community. Check out the show on Instagram at the artists of data science. Follow us on Twitter at artists of data. Look forward to seeing you all there. Uh, there's another section yeah. I like in your book is around the importance of saying no. Um, so can you talk to us a bit about the importance of saying no, especially now that we're in this post-COVID work environment where we're all kind of working from home. And um, it seems like, you know, we have to be online all the time. Yeah, it's, it's, it's very hard. Of course, it brings a lot of opportunities. I mean, the, the reason we connected is, is, is internet and over LinkedIn, it brings a lot of opportunities, but also challenges because... We're online all the time and people also expect you to be online. And in certain companies, they expect when you, when they call in the evening, you, you, you pick up. So you bound, the boundaries become very blurry. And what you need to be mindful of is, hey, what, what, what do I think about such a switch to a situation? And how, do, how does my day look like when I'm most productive? 
uh, I think what, what the trap is, what most people fall into is that they think they don't have an option. And of course, their manager and their, their hierarchy and their manager may demand something. But still, if you let your manager know what your preferences are, if you do the best work in the morning uh, individually, then have a conversation with your manager and say, hey, can I block the first two hours to do programming and go, in, go into depth with my data science models? If you tie it to his, his goals, saying, then I'm more productive, I'm going to deliver more for the team, that's his goal. That's what's helping him. If you're just in a reactive state, uh, seeing all the e emails coming in and, and the requests of phone calls also in the evening, then, then you're going to have a hard time, right? If you show that you're willing to deliver a lot of value and at the same time you can be strict on your boundaries, what is acceptable for you or not, when, when, when are you available, yes or no, that's very important. And that's also where uh, feelings come into play. While I always thought, okay, I'm rational, I'm analytical, I'm trying to make the decisions based on data and facts, but many decisions you cannot make based on facts. Because if someone's going to call me, hey, do you want to help me with this? I need to determine if it fits in my, in my agenda, if it's in line with my ambition, how I feel mentally, do I still have some energy? There's more than uh, rationality and facts to this this equation. Thank you, man. Thank you for that. So now that we've kind of set the foundation in terms of uh, the mechanics of, of how we how we think, can we get more in depth on emotional intelligence? So can we start by having you define emotional intelligence for our listeners? Yeah, emotional intelligence is is often defined as the ability to manage and understand your own emotions and also those of others. What would you say is the importance of emotional intelligence in our personal and professional lives? Yeah, like you said, it goes way beyond professional life. Um, to become a really good data scientist, you need to, first of all, understand the business problem. So you need to ask good questions and understand how they're going to use your data what are their, the most important topics for them. And without emotional intelligence, it's going to be very difficult. Also during the process, it requires good communication because if you're going to sit in a dark corner and not communicate to anyone, see what they think about your intermediate product, your prototype, uh, you're not going to get that buy-in. You know, you want to uh, make them part of the solution, ask for input, uh, not just rational, but also emotional. What do you think about this? Then they become a fan of your product. Then if you're going to present the solution, the key to presentations is that you understand what the audience is in front of you because your message is going to be totally different if you talk to a fellow data scientist, uh, managing level, or to the CEO. All those people have different goals. By understanding that and having the emotional intelligence to understand their emotions behind the behavior, that helps a lot. Then to life, I think... Emotional intelligence is, is the basis of relationships, not just with a partner, because it's incredibly helpful in dating life, of course. Other people will not like, like it if you act like a robot. People can relate very well to humans, other humans, that also sense emotions and are not afraid to express emotions as well. That's also something I see in the workplace where people think, okay, I'm in a corporate life, I work for a big company, so I need to act professional, but professional doesn't, is not equal to, to hiding and having a mask and not showing anything. It doesn't mean you cannot talk about personal stuff. It doesn't mean you cannot say that you're, you're not happy or, or you don't, you don't feel well about a certain topic. Actually, it's the opposite. When I 
opened up a bit more about these topics where I first thought of this is fluffy psychology talk and you know emotions are only harmful for the decision making once I opened up I became more confident I felt much deeper connections with people both on a professional level and also with my friends family and girlfriends so I think there's incredible opportunity when I first got exposed to, to these concepts um, and first started to, you know, not look at this psychology and emotional intelligence type of stuff as, you know, being woo woo, my life changed dramatically and my career has blossomed uh, so, so much. And it's interesting because it's something that is so foundational to being a human, but it doesn't get taught to us in school. Is that because emotional intelligence, it can be learned, but it can't necessarily be taught? I think it can be taught like all these like all these topics you cannot just learn it by by reading 10 pages of emotional intelligence that's also why my book is really practical and exercise oriented because emotional intelligence is also about exercise you cannot improve your people skills without going out in the world and try things out because that's how you learn the same for python or r code of course you can read an extensive uh, manual and help page but if you don't try it yourself and fail and learn and experiment then you're never going to be uh, good at coding so and the same holds for emotional intelligence you need to you need to learn you need to try things out um, yeah some things that that really helped me was uh, was uh, journaling so writing down about your day how was your day and in the beginning, I felt, hmm, okay, maybe this is for kids, you know, kind of evaluating your day, having a, having a log on it, what all the girls had in uh, primary school. But I think it's quite funny that for me, I, I swear by it now. And I don't do it every day, but um, a few times a week. And how it helps me is that I write, write down the, the most important things on the, of the day and also important decisions. And I write down how I, how I think about it and how I feel about it. And it's incredible to, to reflect because it really helps me to uh, evaluate situations and learn from it. And it's also funny to, to read it uh, after five years. To read what, you've, what I've written is really uh, intriguing because it shows how much, you, uh, how, how much you've grown. And that, that's, that makes it really interesting. Yeah, it's a good actionable tip. Like I've got my journal like right here as I pull it. Like, <laughs> Beautiful. People can't see it uh, on the podcast, but yeah, I've got my journal right here. Um, nice. You do journaling? Yeah, yeah. I've just started the practice um, recently and I found it to be helpful. I unfortunately haven't been able to journal in a week or so. I've got a lot to get out now, uh, but, <laughs> but, but yeah, it's, it's been very, very helpful. So that's a really good actionable bit of advice that we could do to start understanding ourselves and our emotions a little bit better is to start journaling. What, what's say, you know, when we're on the job per se, like journaling is, is a very good process when we're, when we're sitting at a desk by ourselves, but you know, when we're actually at work interacting with our colleagues, um, do you have any tips on what we could do to start developing better emotional intelligence? Absolutely, absolutely. Because emotional intelligence is so much related to interactions between people. Because, of course, emotional intelligence is partly what do I feel when I'm alone, but what it's really impactful to, to grow in the interactions with people. That's why I would say fee getting feedback is, is critical. 
a very helpful method to get that feedback from other people. It's it's always a bit scared, of course, scary, of course, but it's so important how people view you. Of course, you see the world through your own pairs of a pair of eyes and other people may have something interesting to tell you. And the method I was referring to is the, is the keep... Uh, start stop method so the first is keep what what should i keep doing so what are my strengths what what are the positive algorithms that i've built over the over the course of my life and what should i uh, start doing what am i not doing yet but is uh, valued if i would do it and what should i stop doing so that would be the negative behavior or that could be um, calling uh, while you're in a meeting but also more subtle things like apologizing when it's not necessary so those three steps so those three steps so keep start stop doing is very very useful what if we're like the type of person who's really quiet and maybe we're uncomfortable asking for feedback? How do we get comfortable doing that? And then once we get feedback, what can we do to not take it as like a personal attack? Yeah, that's indeed difficult because we're wired. And again, that's our emotional elephant. When we get the feedback, our emotional elephant is pushing it away, trying to say, mm, it doesn't matter. Maybe the guy is not right. Well, it does not apply to me or not in this situation. What could be helpful and of what I've heard from other people, especially analytical people that ask for feedback uh, for the first few times, is to ask feedback on a really specific um, project or a really specific presentation or meeting. And in that way, it becomes a bit more uh, narrow and also a bit easier to ask. It also narrows down the feedback so that you will not overwhelm other people by asking that feedback. So that, uh, that helps. And it's not enough to just ask for the feedback. We also need to action on it and then circle back and, and make sure that we've made improvements on that feedback as well, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And by journaling, of course, that, that can help by setting goals for the years. Uh, last, last week, actually, I, I found a, a note from uh, many years ago. It was during a holiday in France where I was uh, with, uh, with some friends. And one of... Those friends gave me the feedback. Yeah, you're you're really good one on one, but in groups you're you're so quiet, and um, you could speak up a bit more. And it was this deep conversation with a lot of <laughs> a lot of beers. But I but I wrote it down, and I, I found the note after after many years. And I went back to this guy who gave me the feedback, this friend, and he laughed first of all that I saved these type of things, these these notes, and continually think about uh, developing myself. But he said, and I asked him, how is it now? Do you see any, any difference? And he did say, yeah, it's, it's completely different now. I, you express yourself much more. Uh, you're not as uh, robotic and, and much more connecting and more courageous in social situations. So it was, it was beautiful to see that piece of uh, progress for myself. And I think if you take those steps continually, uh, that's that's going to be tremendously helpful. Yeah, I often I suffer from the same thing too. I think I'm pretty good one-on-one, -on -one, but group settings, I'm a bit quiet. Um, and I think that a lot of that comes back to, you know, we're talking about the limbic system. There's that little piece in the limbic system, little almond-shaped thing called the amygdala, right? Which is that fear response. It's rooted in our ancient kind of biology where it's like, oh, we don't want to say or seem weird. We don't want the group to ostracize us. It's better just to stay safe in a corner and blend in, than stand out and say something that might get us laughed at. 
And you just have to just overcome that, right? And just just push through it. You know, realize that it's not the end of the world if you say something and people laugh at you. Exactly, exactly. And usually we talk a lot of in our heads and especially analytical people, they overthink a lot what's going to happen if, because, mm-hmm. because we plan so far ahead and we think about too many things, to be honest. But that's also, it's, it's a big power, but it can be a weakness as well, something we, we struggle with. Yeah, it's again, this, this emotional elephant that says, okay, no, don't do it. It's going to be scary. Uh, as the rider, the thinking brain, knows that it's best to, to speak up or to volunteer for the presentation and to do the scary stuff because, of course, everyone knows rationally that's, gonna, that's what brings growth, right? Every, everyone knows that. Um, that's nothing new, but it's, it's all about having the, the courage and, and the, the, the awareness of yourself. Okay, this is just emotions um, because in, in prehistoric times, we, we were living in a tribe where it was very, very important to be accepted by the group. That's why people didn't take big risks. If you said something that was totally out of line with the, with the tribe leads, you may be kicked out of your, your tribe. And the consequence of that is that you would have no, no security, no shelter, no food. So literally, it was deadly. So rejection, standing out from a group was deadly. And that's why we developed our brain throughout all those years such that we are incredibly fearful for, for rejection and taking risks. And your, your rational brain, your thinking brain, of course, knows that you're not going to die if you do a presentation and you mess up. Nothing is going to happen. The, the worst that can happen is that you learn, right? There's this quote from Nelson Mandela, incredible. If you realize that there's so much opportunity for growth. And once I personally saw that it led to a lot of uh, happiness in my life so yeah if you can get through doing things that you hate to do on the other side is greatness you just have to have to do it right are you familiar with uh, with any of the work by uh, well seth godin wrote a book called linchpin uh, scott yeah. pressfield uh, or the war of art uh, do the work they talk about this concept called the resistance and which is exactly just that amygdalic response to not wanting to stand out to not wanting to pursue something because you want to feel safe and secure if you have if you haven't checked those books out i think you'll really enjoy those yeah it's beautiful beautiful books stephen pressfield yeah. I, I i love a lot uh, the the war of art because yeah. I, I felt this resistance as well. I, I, I read the book while writing my own book. At times, I was, it's, it's kind of a roller coaster writing, writing a book because in the beginning, I was just about to write 20 pages, a PDF document for, for data scientists, but it was bigger and bigger. And I was very enthusiastic. I'm incredibly passionate about helping other analytical thinkers with these, uh, uh, developing these uh, people skills. But then I also felt some doubt, you know, if, if I publish a book, what will people think? Is it good enough? Who am I to teach all these people, uh, people skills? And of course, I think I have a, have a story to tell and I've built quite some knowledge on this subject, but still there's a doubt. And I think that makes it also beautiful, especially if you work for yourself because you need to get your own income. You're going to be judged anyway. There's so much judgment also on the internet. If no one is judging you, then you're not pushing yourself outwards enough. Yeah, I definitely felt that resistance a lot. And I still do with this podcast specifically. Like, you know, this is, I consider this to be my art, my art form. And I definitely feel that resistance a lot, especially when it comes to trying to edit things, make it perfect. And I noticed myself not shipping things. The podcast could have came out like a month earlier, but it was the resistance that, that led me to, to delay and then prevent shipping it until, you know, I eventually did. But yeah, that, that's, that's awesome, man. I'm, I'm glad that we speak the same language there. 
Are you an aspiring data scientist struggling to break into the field? Well, then check out dsdj.co forward slash artists to reserve your spot for a free informational webinar on how you can break into the field. That's going to be filled with amazing tips that are specifically designed to help you land your first job. Check it out. dsdj.co forward slash artists. How does emotional intelligence now, how does it change or does it stay the same uh, now that we're in this post-COVID world uh, where our face-to-face interactions are now you know, virtual? Yeah, I think it makes emotional intelligence even more important because there's, there's a barrier. Of course, we can see each other with webcams if we're lucky. I'm still in many meetings where webcams are not used. Even if webcams are on, it's, it creates a barrier. It's, it's different. Physically, there's a different response as well if you're in the same room because all the, all the chemicals are, are harmonizing and there's mirror neur- neurons firing if you're in the same room. And that gives a bonding feeling, which you don't have if you are behind the camera. And that makes it difficult. Why it makes emotional intelligence more, more important is because, because of this distance. You need to check more often how, how, how it is going with people. If you, if you do a project with, with others, have, have some quick check-ins how people are doing. And of course, this time also brings a lot of anxiety. Am I going to keep my job? Um, am I applying for the right jobs? Um, am I crushed because I'm rejected? There's a lot of, there's a lot of anxiety in this, in this time. And if you are aware of your own emotions and not being blown away by your own emotions, that helps a lot because then you can consistently make the right decisions and not be pulled away by your emotional elephant and having a crushed ego. So you talk about this concept of a bright spot in your book. Would you mind just giving a a say overview of what that concept means and maybe how we can go about identifying and cultivating our own bright spot? Yeah, sure. So most people are aware of blind spots, which are weaknesses that we are not aware about, aware of, and feedback can help to uncover those. But the contrary also exists. So bright spots are strengths that we are not aware of. And the reason we are often not aware of it is because it feels so normal, because it feels very normal to to do something. To give an example, I I once was in in a meeting and we were totally lost in a discussion. No one had an idea where we were going and no one had even idea what what problem we are solving. That's that's why I went to the to a whiteboard and I wrote down what the core of the problem was. And I didn't have the solution, but I just wrote down the core of the problem, a few points about the main questions that came up during the meeting. And it was nothing new for me. It was nothing I added to the board. It was not brilliant. That's what I thought. But after the meeting, several people came to me and they said, wow, it's, it's incredible what you did there because, because you summarized and put it on the whiteboard where everyone could see it. The whole meeting was so much more focused and in the end, we got to a solution. And for me, it felt, I felt quite amazed by that feedback because I thought I didn't do anything, right? It was, it was very natural. I just wrote it down on the board. And for many people, those, those strengths, whether it's the ability to listen or ability to dive into a model and find one piece of code that is not correct, we are often not aware of those. So by getting feedback, you cannot just uncover your blind spots, but also your bright spots. That's an excellent point, right? Because I think when people ask for feedback, they always think they're going to hear back something negative. But oftentimes you'll hear back something that people are saying that you're good at. You didn't even know you were good at it because it's just natural to you, right? That's awesome, man. So that leads me to the next question here. 
It's about self-awareness. How can data scientists cultivate better self-awareness? Do you have any actionable tips for our listeners that they can implement today to start becoming more self-aware? Yeah, I think a few I pointed out already, which is one, journaling, and two, getting feedback. A third one uh, is, is one that not everyone is comfortable with, and I wasn't either. Uh, because it's meditation. And since five years, I've, I've meditated and I do so with a, an application on my phone. So it helps you to, because it helps me if someone guides me through it, because it's very hard to, to sit still and to think about nothing because it, fe- it felt so unproductive for me. I thought, okay, I'm just sitting here and what am I doing? It's maybe this is the woo-woo stuff. Nothing is going to happen. I was very uh, judgmental and I think my emotional elephant tried to pull me out of the the habit there. But slowly I I build the habit. And if I need to mention one thing that had really helped me in the last years, it's meditation. Because it calms down my mind because I'm thinking so much. Also before this podcast, I I meditated for 10 minutes just to get into the zone and to to relax and not think about the one other other things I want to do in the in the coming days. Because then I won't be present with you and having a having a good conversation and I want to be here. That's also the basis for having a good good connection. And why it's important for data scientists is because if we stay in our own head and we if we have all these thoughts but we're not in the present in the meeting with the the guy you're meeting or in a in a bigger meeting, what are you doing presentation or whether you want to focus on making the best data data science model you've built so far you need to focus and focus is one of the most uh, difficult difficult things uh, there is at the moment because you know, we've we are pulled in all different directions with social media and news everything is available meditation helped me to one become more more self-aware and two to focus my attention yeah i definitely noticed a dramatic shift in the quality of my focus once I started to incorporate a meditative process in, as you know, part of my daily life. And you know, it doesn't even take that much. 10 minutes a day is all you really need, right? And so the way the way I incorporate it into my day is like I'll, I'll do my cardio routine, you know, getting into that uh, that sympathetic nervous system, heart rate up, flight or fight or flight mode, and then immediately after jumping right into a meditative state to get into that parasympathetic nervous system, that rest and digest mode and just calm, relaxed, and then ready to, ready to go about my day with some clear focus, clear thinking. Yeah. I think it's something that people should definitely start incorporating. So how can we create a better awareness of our algorithms in our head? Is it through meditation or is there something else that we could, we could start doing? Yeah. Meditation can certainly help. Why meditation helps is not because all of a sudden during your meditation, you think, okay, hey, this is an algorithm that I've built. This is a pattern. So if someone is uh, calling loudly in the in the hallway, I'm getting very annoyed. Um, no, that's not the insight that you're getting thanks to meditation straight away. It's more indirect because because you if you meditate, you you're silence your your mind. Because of that, you get much more aware of all everything that's happening in your body. When someone talks over you in a meeting, to when someone interrupts you and you are aware of that, you can really feel in your stomach like, I, I, I don't like this. If it happens a few times, it can really, really bother you. Then maybe you totally shut down and you don't say anything anymore. By becoming more aware, you notice that, hey, I'm shutting down. But what is the alternative? Maybe I can be aware of, hey, I'm shutting down, but then think, hmm, th- this doesn't feel right. Maybe I'm going to talk to the guy who interrupted me three times and tell him about what happened and how I feel about it. And becoming more aware of your own body and what's happening and your preferences, that also helps 
helps it to express it to other people so that other people can take into account your preferences. When I was in high school, I just assumed other people would take into account my preferences, but I never expressed them. I never expressed them. I just hoped they would take them into account. And if they were not, I felt a bit angry or resentful, but now I'm, I've built more awareness. I'm able to, to express that to people. And that's how I give them the opportunity to, to take my, my algorithms into account. So if I find it really uh, bothering when people interrupt me, then I can tell people and maybe the next time they will, they will take, to, take it into account. But if I never express them, express my own algorithms and my preferences, I don't give them the opportunity to, uh, to take them into account. So now that we've kind of got some tips on how we can develop some better awareness of our algorithms, um, what if we notice that we have some quote unquote, maybe bad or negative algorithms? You mentioned a three-step process in your book for changing our algorithms. Do you mind just uh, quickly kind of going over that at a high level for us? Yeah. The three-step process that I mentioned in the book is first of all, boss. So when you feel the behavior is happening, then take a pause. So in the imagine, so I, if you're really bad at saying no to people, then every time someone comes with a request, don't say yes immediately, but try to catch yourself in the moment. And that's where this awareness helps. And then just take a pause, pause three seconds. And then the second step after pausing is experiment with new behavior. Maybe say, I need to check my agenda before I commit to any new tasks. If you feel very, feel very confident, you say, uh, no, that's, that's not going to work for me. But there's various types of behaviors that you can choose. And then the third step is that you're going to repeat and monitor the progress. You're going to try and experiment with those behaviors after catching yourself with the behavior that you want to get rid of. And then you keep experimenting and see what happens in practice. Then journaling helps to, to track that progress. For example, at, before you go to sleep, you look at a few situations. Hey, a few guys ask for my help. And um, that's always a good sign, of course, when people ask for your help because your work is, is, is valued. If you're not assertive enough, you you have an 80-hour work week and you're going to work on stuff maybe you're not interested in. By pausing and taking that moment for, for reflecting, then implementing the new type of behavior and then continuously doing that while monitoring the results, then you can, in the end, implement a new behavior. And the beauty of, beauty of that is that after a while, it's not so difficult anymore to go to say no to someone if that's what you mean or to stand up and raise your hand, ask a question that feels stupid or volunteer for a presentation or do some coding that you've never done before. Because you're building the, the habits and you're building new patterns, new algorithms in your head, which make it more automatic and which make it easier for you to choose that desirable behavior instead of the behavior you want to get rid of. Reminds me uh, about kind of the habit loop, habit formation. You've got the cue, routine, reward, that kind of habit loop cycle. Let's shift gears a little bit here. Uh, I read a blog post of yours. It must have been from a while back, uh, but it was about entrepreneurship. Now, this is something that I'm fascinated about. Um, I absolutely love this concept of entrepreneurship. Can you talk to me about what it means to be an entrepreneur and how a data scientist can cultivate the qualities of an entrepreneur within themselves and be one for their organization. Yeah, how I see entrepreneurship is that you're kind of running yourself as a company within a company because we're all aware of uh, entrepreneurship, which is running your own company, but this is in the company you're working for. And how I see that is that you have uh, various 
various types because there's you have the expectations of other people which is uh, your job description all the requests that come in meeting requests then you then you have your own skills so a circle with your own skills and then below that you have what is helping the organization what brings value and for the people that know uh, ikagai that's uh, it's similar it's a, it's a similar approach uh, i want go into the details, but what is incredibly useful is when you become aware of your own strengths and every, whether you're a data scientist or in a different role, you always have a, a few superpowers that other people don't have to the same extent. So if you become really aware of what is my strength and how can I add, how can I use those skills to add value in the company, then it, that is where you become very powerful. What makes it tricky is that people always have certain, certain, um, People have always certain uh, thoughts about what you should be doing. And that's where you need to be very assertive. And because entrepreneurship is about taking new initiatives to, to match your skills with what is desirable for the organization. And it doesn't always match the needs of other people. But that's why, why you need to be assertive and go for those, those opportunities that uh, really contribute. So, for example... In the company I worked for, a consulting company, I found uh, virtual reality uh, very fascinating for uh, for some time. It was a few years ago. I knew it was a big trend, and I decided to to organize a big a big event at at Capgemini, the company I was working for, and it was really fun because I could do totally my own thing. It was not there yet, so you're creating something from scratch, and it also delivers value to the company. And it was challenging because people said, hey, you know, you have other deliverables, you need to work on a project and I need to make time for it. But for me, those new initiatives are incredibly rewarding for myself and also contributed a lot to, uh, to the companies I worked for. Last question before we jump into our lightning round. Uh, what's the one thing you want people to learn from your story? The most important thing I would say is that emotions are not scary. So Seth Godin said, yes, emotions are there. You shouldn't be overwhelmed by them, but you should just dance with the fear. That is really in line with the message in my book. In the past, I was pushing away emotions. I thought, I'm not emotional. I'm a rational guy. I'm an analytical thinker. By understanding those emotions and not being afraid to look at it, I could push through the fear and do much more fun things in my professional life as well as personal life, like, like bungee jumping and stuff like that. I'm intrigued by that because while you're on the edge of, of a bridge while bungee jumping, your whole body screams, this is not a good idea. This is not a good idea. And that's the emotional elephant speaking because the emotional elephant is mainly concerned with being, being relaxed and being comfortable. And then you need to push yourself with your rational brain. Like this is really, really something I want to do. So I'm going to push through and just jump. And that's why I'm fascinated with that. So to come back to your question, I think... It's incredibly important also for rational people, analytical thinkers to understand that emotions are relevant. And even if you don't believe it for yourself, uh, you're in a world with people full of emotions. I'm not sure if you've tried uh, to change someone's mind just with facts and, uh, and rational thought. It's, it's very difficult. So let's go ahead and jump into our lightning round. 100,000 people. Tell us real quick why you chose that number. And then also, what's the impact that you want to have on these 100,000 people? Yeah, when I was on my on my sabbatical on my world trip around the world, 
I was uh, I was writing a lot, and I saw my my articles reached uh, six hundred thousand views, and I thought, okay, this internet is really incredible, and I want to enlarge my impact. That's why I said, okay, I, I wanna I w- I'm gonna help all those people, and I've I've built experience with training, coaching, and I've worked with a lot of data scientists, and now I'm gonna take the next step, and that's why I decided to that I wanted to impact one hundred thousand people. I think given the the amount of readers that I've accumulated, this is a uh, yeah, is a good goal. I'm not sure uh, when I'm going to reach it, but I get incredibly, incredible satisfaction from reading emails, personal emails from people that say what is the impact for them as an analytical thinker. Uh, reading my book, that gives me so much satisfaction and yeah, I'm really happy, happy to read that. We discussed emotional intelligence in great detail today. So barring that, what would you say is a topic outside of data scientists that you think Every data scientist should spend some time researching. I would say psychology, but it's really related to uh, to emotional intelligence. So I'll skip I'll skip that. What I think everyone can learn a lot from is high performance sports. In high performance sports, you need to build the discipline, the habits. Uh, you need to dance with the fear of performing. You need to understand that. Not every time you're going to succeed, but in the long term, if you make the right choices every every day, you're going to accumulate, you're going to grow up to a point of, of really high performance. I wouldn't say that everyone needs to have the ambition to be the, the number one in the world. I don't think that's necessary. I think what is more important is that you try to grow every year and every every day you make small decisions that all combine up to to really big growth. Not comparing yourself to others, but just to yourself. Am I better than yesterday? And how can I be a better person? Because I've really experienced if you become a better person and grow as a as a person, the professional career is also going to take off. I like that. High performance athletes, like you can learn a lot in terms of just mindset and drive and um, motivation from them. Have you read the book Relentless by Tim Grover? No, I haven't. So Tim Grover, he was the like, kind of the personal coach for Kobe Bryant, Michael Jordan, Dwayne Wade, and a number of other professional basketball players. And he wrote a book called Relentless. And in that book, Relentless, he talks about three personas. There's the the cooler, the closer, and the cleaner. If you're into high performance sports and you know mindsets of high performance athletes, you're really, really going to enjoy that book. So definitely, definitely check that out. Um, cool. Thank you for the recommendation. I'm going to yeah. check that out. So what's your, what's your favorite hand in poker? <laughs> uh, I would say it's a uh, Jack Dan suited of hearts. All right. Nice. Nice. So what's the number one book you would recommend our audience read and your most impactful takeaway from it? Actually, it's, it's in line with the, um, with what I've just said uh, about sports, because the book I would recommend is the compound effect. I believe it's by Darren Hart. Hardy, the compound effect. So mm-hmm. the key message is that all the small decisions that you that you take every, no matter how big or small, whether it's to eat a Snickers or a Kiwi, whether it's to speak up in a meeting or stay silent, whether to approach a girl in a nightclub or not, everything compounds up to uh, your life. So every every time you, you make a decision, it's going to be a decision in the direction you want to go in with your life or not. And if you continually make the right decisions, the health, building the healthy habits, growing as a person, the rest is going to come. And it's incredible how much um, difference it is between between those two. And I know it's the light, lightning route, but it, let me quickly elaborate on this because there's a powerful example. If you take a plane from, from Amsterdam, the Netherlands, to Kenya and and the angle uh, that a plane takes off, off with is just one degree 
to the right or to the left, that makes an incredible difference. So you're not going to end up in Kenya, but instead you're going to end up in Somalia. That metaphor was really powerful for me because it shows that no matter how small the decisions, if you are only one degree off course, in the end of your life, you're going to reach completely different destinations. Yeah, that book is really, really good. He's got a lot of amazing illustrative examples. The one that really struck me was the double a penny for a day, every day for a month. And by the end of the month, you'll be a multimillionaire. That was Insane. But yeah, Compound Effect is a amazing book. Um, so let's talk, what's your morning routine like? Yeah, especially in this corona time, I try to uh, go outside. There's no complete lockdown in the Netherlands. So what I do, I get up, I have my alarm outside of my bed, so not to snooze. That's what I used to do uh, for a long time. But I get up, I drink a glass of water, eat a banana, eat some nuts, and then I go out for, to do some sports. There are some pull-up bars close to my house. I'm doing some um, some exercise. I just look at the water and the green uh, the green fields around me to really start the day slow, but at the same time with with high intensity sports. Then I go back. I eat a healthy breakfast. Have a have a shower. The last few minutes a cold shower. Same as bungee jumping. You need to push through and tell your tell your mind, hey, I'm I'm the boss here. I'm the boss here. And the emotional elephant can go anyway, but I'm I'm deciding what's gonna happen. Then I do some meditation. Not long, just ten minutes, like you said. And I enjoy uh, a few minutes in the sun on the bed with my, uh, my girlfriend. And that's the one thing I haven't been able to incorporate into my routine yet is that cold shower. Like all the books I read talk about the benefits of that. And I'm like, yes, I want all those benefits, but <laughs> it's that, it's that fear, yeah. man. It's that, I just, the last bit of uh, resistance that I'm facing, I think I've got to, I've got to start breaking into it, man. If, if we could somehow get a magic telephone that allowed us to contact 20 year old Gilbert, what would you say to him? First of all, tell us what you were doing at 20 years old. And what would you say to him at that point? I was playing poker actually when I was 20. And what would I say? I was at the time I was really, really dependent on opinions of other people. So I would say, don't think so much about what other people think. Don't care so much because I was so heavily influenced. I was continually adjusting my behavior depending on the people around me. And I think that's totally unhealthy. It's not authentic. It's it's not fun. I was not spontaneous. It was all too calculated, way too robotic. So I would say to him, don't think so much about what other people think. What's the best advice you've ever received? Write down the number one priority of the day. It's incredibly simple, but so powerful. What song do you currently have on repeat? I keep enjoying Eminem till I collapse. I love that song. Good one, man. Good one. So where can people find part one of your book that you've uh, so generously given out for free? Yeah, they can find it on MindSpeaking. So mindspeaking.com slash book. I'm All giving right. away part one for free. You can sign up there. Awesome, Eddie. I'd, I'd recommend everybody listening to check that out. We'll definitely include the link to that in the show notes. Uh, so how can people connect with you? Where can they find you? Best way is on uh, LinkedIn. So you can find me. Gilbert and a very last, <laughs> very difficult last name. Apreet will put it in the comments, I guess. And uh, yeah. always uh, willing to um, to have a have a chat. Let me know uh, how I can help, and I'm curious to uh, to hear from you. All right. Well, Gilbert, thank you so so much for taking time out of your schedule to be here on the show and and talk about your work with me. I really really appreciate you. Thank you so much. Thank you too. I really enjoyed the conversation, and uh, I, you have a lot of knowledge on these topics as well. So. I'm sure we're going to talk another time. Definitely, man. Look forward to have you back uh, for round two at some point. Cheers. I appreciate it.